0: expected to be horrified we're expected to treat to, to consider those bystanders with contempt they stood by and did nothing to help whereas in the second article we all agree with the article this young man was a hero the name of Joshua trailer will be honored so we're returning this morning to the subject of of evil and suffering. And again, we're going to start with considering that one of the big objections to God's existence that some people have. That is, there can't be a good God given the fact that there is so much evil and suffering in the world. Or phrased in a different way, people might say, even if there is a God, he can't be worthy of worship since he allows evil and suffering to continue. And I think as we reflect on our reactions to those two news stories, we can get a bit of a sense of the force of that objection, Because often this objection is coming from that same inbuilt sense of right and wrong that is recognized by the writers of those articles. It's wrong to stand by and do nothing in the face of evil. But it's right and good and expected that we should do something if we possibly can. God is supposed to have the power. So why doesn't he act? Why does he who is supposed to be good sit by and do nothing as suffering and evil continue unchecked. Let's be honest, even as Christians, can't we wrestle with these same questions ourselves sometimes? As we see the evil around us, as we experience suffering ourselves, why doesn't God intervene? Joshua Traylor gave his life to help that young boy. What sort of God would stand by and do nothing? And that's the question I want to address this morning. What sort of God if you joined us on the Life Explored course recently, you'll remember that uh, we addressed this very question. So some of what we look at this morning will be a refresher for you. If you didn't come, you missed out. And I would encourage you to do it if, when we do it again. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, what is the God of the Bible like? And if that's the case, do come speak to us afterwards, because we'd love to um, uh, let you know when we run the course the next time. In the first session of this course, we were invited to think about some of the popular views people have about God. And our group came up with a list that included the following. Distant, uncaring, harsh, demanding. Just the sort of God, in fact, that might well sit by and do nothing in the face of evil. And if we were just halfway true in our assessment of what people think God is like, is it any wonder that people don't want to know him? So clearly the way we view God is really important. And as we start this morning, I want to try and paint a picture for you of the God that is revealed in the Bible, as opposed to the God of popular imagination. And to do that, I'm going to focus on on one fundamental difference that exists between those two kinds of God, and that is God's Trinitarian nature. You see, there are lots of different sorts of gods out there, but only the God of the Bible is revealed as being one God, yet existing as three persons. And this isn't some sort of just some sort of theological nicety that we can take or leave, something um, that we don't have to worry about too much. It literally makes all the difference in the world. Now, I know this is a bit of a leap. I started off talking about evil and suffering, and suddenly I'm talking about the Trinity. Um, So let me just uh, outline to you how I've structured this talk so you can get a bit of an idea of where we're going. So overall, we're addressing this question of what sort of God, as in what sort of God would sit by and do nothing in the face of evil? Is this the sort of God that we worship? So in this first part of the talk, what I'm going to do is try and address this question by contrasting these two kinds of God, the kind of singular God of popular imagination with the triune God of the Bible. And in this first part, I'm not going to be referring directly to the Bible. Um, I'm going to speculate a bit, and I'm going to ask you to engage your imaginations a bit. And I know it's a bit different to usual, but just go with me. Because what I want to try and do here is set the stage for the second part of the talk where I'm going to um, turn to a passage in Isaiah and talk about the God that is revealed to us in the Bible. And hopefully by the end we'll see that it sort of fits together. So let's start by thinking about the popular view of God. This sort of God who's a singular kind of God as opposed to the Trinitarian God of the Bible. Now before the universe or anything else was created, this God has existed alone for all eternity. So let's try and imagine what this kind of God is going to be like. Anyone want to give me a suggestion? Let me suggest to you then. I think he's going to be lonely. Did somebody say lonely? Yeah, I think he's going to be lonely, don't you? He's going to be bored. I don't know. I think almost by definition, he's going to be self-absorbed or self-centered. Because what else is there? There is nothing else to contemplate. There is nothing else to look at. There is nothing else to relate to. So this God can't have any intrinsic qualities that are outward-looking, any intrinsic qualities that are relational. These things can't be part of his fundamental makeup. So if we think of one, obviously, relational characteristic, love, how could this God have any intrinsic capacity to love when there was never anyone else or anything else to love? So if this solitary God loved anybody, it must have only been himself. And what do we call someone whose love is turned in on themselves? We call them selfish, don't we? Not loving. And surely this is what this God must be like. Somebody completely turned on, in on himself, selfish, self-absorbed, with no innate ability to love, to be kind. there would be no meaning to words like trustworthy or generous because to be trustworthy and generous, you have to have some object of that trust or generosity. So we have this self-absorbed God who will assume is very powerful and intelligent. And for some reason, he decides to create a universe. Now, it's quite difficult to think why he would want to do that. Perhaps it was just a whim, something to do for the sake of it. Perhaps he was bored. After all, what does a God do all day when he has eternity to fill? Perhaps he relished the challenge and Creating a universe like this would be a focus for his intellect. Perhaps he was just lonely and wanted someone to talk to. Or perhaps he wanted someone to serve him. We don't know, but whatever the reason is, what we can say is it has to be to fulfil his own need in some way, because that's the kind of God that he must be. So for whatever reason, he makes this world, and he puts people on it. And initially, he's quite pleased with it. It's like a child with a new toy. It all works just as it's supposed to. The planets go around, the sun, the rain falls, the grass grows. It's got all these cute little people walking over it, talking to him, serving him, whatever it was he made them to do. And you can get the feeling that he sits back quite pleased looking at this. And this is really the God of the deists. A God, a powerful creator God who created, and then sits back and just watches, distant and uninvolved. But then... These people that he's made, they mess everything up. The ungrateful creatures stopped worshipping him or serving him or whatever it had made them to do. It's like you're stroking the cat and it scratches you or feeding the dog and it bites your hand. This shiny new toy is suddenly suddenly spoiled and broken. We all know what that feels like. All the anticipation, all the work, and it's already gone and broken. So how is this God going to react? What does he do when this world that he's made goes wrong? Well, I suggest that it's not going to be in any way that's good for us. Remember, this is a God with no intrinsic capacity to love, to be patient or to be kind. This is a God who is selfish and self-absorbed. And how do people like that react when things don't go their way? Well, sometimes they get angry and they lash out. So this God might get angry and destroy the world. Or perhaps he might just sit back. And just watch it destroy itself with the same kind of indifference that a child might show to a sandcastle that is made being washed away by the incoming tide. The likelihood is that this kind of God will either be angry and judgmental or distant and uncaring. In fact, isn't this exactly the kind of God that many of us around around of us believe in? These are all words that were on the list of popular views people have about God. And they seem to follow naturally from this belief, belief in this solitary kind of God. But this isn't the God of the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, we're told that there is only one God. But even there, there are hints that this isn't the whole story. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he says that he's God. And he talks about his Father who is in heaven. He tells us about the Holy Spirit that he is going to send. And we start to see a picture emerging of one God who exists as three persons. The God that is revealed to us in the Bible is of a kind that we could never have imagined. Pulling together various strands from the Bible of the revelation that we're given, the Westminster Confession tries to summarize something about this triune God. It says that we believe that in the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, There's no question this is a deep mystery. And that's why many people reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Our minds simply can't grasp how it works. There isn't anything that we can really compare it to. But you know, I really think we shouldn't allow ourselves to be troubled by that too much. You know, over the last century or so, scientists have started to discover that the universe we live in defies imagination. It really is stranger than you can think. You know, science fiction writers and fantasy writers—they will try to imagine different kinds of worlds, but none of them come even close to describing the bizarre nature of the world that we actually live in. And if our universe described defies understanding, why should we expect that we should be able to tie up the God who created it in some kind of neat theological ribbon? God doesn't explain the Trinity to us. He just tells us that that's how it is. And if we can accept not understanding some of the mystery of the universe, I think we should be able to accept not understanding something of the mystery of the God who made it. So we're just going to take the Trinity at face value. And even just taking it at that level, we can see that it makes all the difference in the world to the nature of God. Because in contrast to the solitary God, this God has to have relational qualities. He can't not have. Because for all eternity, there have been other people for each person of the Godhead to relate to. So such a God is intrinsically capable of being love, loving. For all eternity, God the Father has loved God the Son... The Son has loved the Father. The Holy Spirit has loved the Father and the Son. For all eternity, there's been this community of love. A community, but perfect unity. Because God is one indivisible being. So we can say that love, that love that they have between them is perfect. And that's why we can say God is love. That's what he is. Such a God is empathetic and kind. Such a God is creative and dynamic. The Bible tells us that the Father eternally begets the Son. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Without trying to understand a mechanism for that, what we can see that is described here is a a dynamic and life-giving God. There's nothing static and fixed here. The God of the Bible is constantly active. I don't mean necessarily in doing things. I mean his essential being. He is so very much alive. There's an eternal pouring forth of life and love going on within the Godhead. From the Father to the Son. From the Father and the Son to the Holy Spirit and so on. So think of powerful waterfalls, lightning and thunder. A kaleidoscope of colour, of springs of water coming out of the ground vitality, an irrepressible life, an eternal fellowship of goodness, of joy, of giving, of loving, of life. Felix last week described it as an eternal dance, and I think that's a lovely picture. This is as far as you can get from the powerful, intelligent, but cold, calculating, and distant, solitary God of popular imagination. This is a God from whom love and light and life and joy just pour out. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, I think it was Magician's Nephew, he has Aslan, who is a lion, a picture of God, walking through a cold, dead and colourless world. And as he walks, grass springs to life, trees grow, there is colour and light and warmth. He's not actively doing anything other than just walking, but just his very presence Brings life and and, 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 and and light. And I think this is a good picture. This is the God that we worship. Our God boils over with love and with life. So with that kind of image of God in our minds we can ask, well why would this God create? Because he has need of nothing. He lives in blissful and perfect community. There is nothing that he can possibly gain for himself by making anything. So when this God creates, it's out of the overflow of his love because it's in his very nature to be creative, to make, to give, to love. These are all things that God has been doing for all eternity. So making a world and populating it with people capable of relating to him is a very natural act for him. There are more beings that can share in his love and his goodness. More people to join in this eternal giving and sharing of love and relationship. More people to join in this eternal dance. Contrast this with the motivations of our singular God that he might have had. For that God creating was essentially a selfish exercise. Something to fulfill a need within himself. For here we have a God who is creating so that other beings can share in the community of love. Beings that will worship him, yes, but not out of obligation, but because it's a natural response to the love that they receive. In giving love to God, they would be sharing in the giving and receiving of love that already happens within the Godhead. As we've heard in The Life Explored, this, of course, this isn't a God who demands, this is a God who generously and abundantly gives. So I want you to keep all that in mind now as we think of how this God would react when the people that He'd made for such glorious purpose rejected him, turned their backs on him and went their own way. You see, I think it's impossible to imagine this kind of God just sitting back and watching disinterestedly as it all fell apart, like the child who watches the sea destroy the sandcastle. It's impossible to imagine this kind of God um, having a fit of rage and destroying all he had made. Impossible to imagine because it just wouldn't fit with the kind of character of God we've been describing. But also impossible to imagine because that would presuppose that our rejection of God took him by surprise. And the fact is, of course, God knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that sin and evil would come into the world. He wasn't taken by surprise. And before he created, he already knew what he was going to do in response. And here I want to get back to where we started. See, the objection that I could never worship a God who just looked at all the evil and suffering in the world and just sat back and let it continue. And we would respond, no. No. Such a God wouldn't be worthy of worship. Such a God would not be loving. So that sort of God that would sit by indifferently and watch evil and suffering is the kind of selfish, solitary, inward-looking God. A God to be despised and feared. But this isn't the God of the Bible. The triune, loving, giving God. This is the sort of God who certainly would act at great cost to himself if necessary. But he wouldn't stand by and do nothing. And, of course, this is exactly what he has done. So in John 3.16, a very familiar verse to most of you, we read that, For God so loved the world. And Notice that so. This isn't just a statement of fact, God loved the world. No, this is a statement of passionate commitment. God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't sit by in the face of evil and do nothing. No, the triune, loving, giving God gave of himself. God the Father gave Jesus his precious son. And Jesus came, came right into the midst of the evil, the suffering and the pain, where he participated in the fullness of it. And he did this so that we could have eternal life, sharing in God's love forever. And the fact that he would do this was foretold hundreds of years before in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look together at Isaiah chapter 53, a very familiar passage to many of you. And let's see how this describes how the God of the Bible is described to us here. So I'm going to read the whole chapter and then just pick up on a few points from it afterwards. So reading from verse 1 of um, Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him, Like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned, each of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silence. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a very familiar passage for many of us. Let me just draw some basic points from it. Firstly, let's be clear about the subjects of the passage. That is, who is it talking about? Well, if you're familiar with the gospel um, accounts of Jesus, you'll recognize straight away this, this passage describes Jesus and his life and his death with incredible accuracy. And the writers of the New Testament make it clear that this is, in fact, um, the case. There are many references we could look at. but One example is found in Acts chapter 8. You might recall that Philip um, encountered a senior official from Ethiopia riding his passage and reading the following passage. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before it, shearers is his silence. So he opens not his mouth. And you'll recognize that as being in the passage we just read. And the official said to Peter, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So that's the first and most basic point. We can be confident as we read this passage, that we're reading about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And so this is a passage that describes how our God came to earth to bear our sin, to carry our grief and our sorrow. In other words, this passage is all about God dealing with evil and suffering. So our God can't be accused of sitting back and doing nothing. The Bible teaches that he has already done something. The problem is that he hasn't done it in the way people expect that he would do it or in the way they think he should do it. And just as it is now, so it was when Jesus came. He didn't come as the Jews expected. So in John 12, we read that though he, that is Jesus, had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So our passage this morning opens with a prophecy that the Jews would not receive Jesus, that he would not be believed, but instead he would be despised and rejected. Well, Why was this? Well, Israel was an occupied country, and the Jews were looking for a mighty warrior king who would come and destroy their enemies. And Jesus didn't come like that. Instead, we're told he came as a shoot out of dry ground, a tender shoot. And that he would grow up with no form or majesty or beauty. And this was a far cry from the Jews' conception of the promised Messiah. And it's the same today. God doesn't fit the mould that people want to fit him in. Amongst other things, people want him to come and to intervene and to wipe away evil and suffering from the face of the earth. But there's a problem with this. Because you see, evil isn't like dirt on a work surface. It's not just something that can be wiped off. Evil and suffering isn't just something which is somewhere out there, some kind of abstract thing. Evil is a moral quality. It exists only within beings that have moral capacity. The dogs and dolphins can't do evil things. Rocks and and trees, they can't do evil things. But people made in the image of God, they can. Think of terrorism, war, murder, hate, theft. They're all done by people. So when we object that God should do something about evil and suffering, what are we asking? That that all evil people should be destroyed? But who are these evil people? And there's the rub. Because we'd all like to think that those evil people are somewhere out there. But as Solzhenitsyn says, if only it were so simple... If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and all that were necessary was to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line, he says, that divides good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? If God did come and destroy evil, as some seem to demand, who would be left standing in his mercy, God had a better plan. So rather than coming as a mighty warrior, king in judgment, we're told that Jesus came as a shoot out of dry ground. In other words, his was an inauspicious beginning. He grew as a tender shoot, vulnerable and weak. He had no image that would cause us to desire him. And those who were looking for someone big and powerful, well, they missed him. And just a quick aside, are we guilty of the same sometimes? We look for, do we look for the big and the dramatic and so we miss seeing God in the small and mundane. That's why we encourage people week by week to come and bring their stories, not to worry that those stories are too small. The world looks for the big and the spectacular. But that's often not how our God works. Often it's in the small and mundane that God is working. So let's not miss out on seeing God working by looking in the wrong places. So moving on in the passage, one of the main things that stands out in this passage is that Jesus would suffer throughout his life, and that his life would end in a cruel and unjust death. If your Bible has headings, and the chances are it, su- it titles this passage The Suffering Servant. And if I just remind you a few extracts, you'll see why. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. When God came to earth, he came to suffer and to die. We're told that he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. There's no suffering that we can endure that he has not already carried. In the New Testament, Jesus describes our high priest, and we're told that he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he too lived as a man and suffered all that we suffer. This is our God. There's a play called The Long Silence. It tells a story about a group of people that decided that before God could judge them, he would have to know how they had suffered in life. They said God would have to live on earth as a man. He should be born illegitimate and a Jew. He should be betrayed by his closest friends. He should face false charges. He should be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge they said he should be tortured and he should see what it means to be terribly alone and then he should be allowed to die. And We're told that as each person announced his part of the story, uh, the, um, the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the crowd. But when the last one had finished, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly they all knew That God had already served his sentence. See how God didn't sit back indifferent to our suffering. He came right into the midst of it. And experienced it all. He carried it all. And that matters. It matters because it means we have a God who understands what we're going through. When we're in the midst of trials of various kinds... We know that Jesus has already walked that path before us. When we pray, we aren't praying to a God who can't comprehend what we're going through. He knows he's been there and that's a real source of comfort. It matters because it means we can trust him. We might not understand why God allows evil and suffering in the first place. We might not understand why he lets it carry on. We might not understand why we in particular have to suffer the specific trials that we are going through. We might understand why Jesus had to come uh, in order to address that problem. There might be all sorts of whys that we don't and can't answer. But the fact that he was willing to put himself on the line, that he was willing to come right alongside us in our suffering, means that we can be sure that he cares, that He is good, that he's utterly serious about dealing with the problem, that he's willing to pay the highest price. So even if we don't know the answers, and often we won't, one thing we can be sure of is that we can trust God. Imagine that you're feeling unwell, and you go to see the doctor, and after examining you and running a few quick tests, the doctor tells you that actually you're very seriously ill. So ill, in fact, that you need an immediate kidney transplant. And given your condition, that's going to be a really risky procedure. Now, I know this is a really far-fetched scenario. Just imagine so you're probably feeling quite sceptical about the diagnosis. You're very unsure that you want to undergo the operation. You've got a lot of questions. You're not sure that you trust the doctor. But then imagine, the doctor tells you further. To make matters worse, you have a rare blood type. And a donor is never going to be found in time. But he goes on and says, but he shares that same blood type. And he is willing to give you one of his kidneys. Now, do you trust that doctor more or less? Are you more or less likely to agree to the operation? Aren't you likely to trust him more? But if so, what's changed? You still don't really understand what's going on and why the operation is necessary. The risks haven't changed. But the fact that the doctor is willing to put himself on the line, to get right alongside you, to bear the cost, to share the risk, that changes something, doesn't it? something fundamentally changes in the way you view your doctrine. That's going to uh, change the decision you make. So we can trust God, even when we're going through tough times, because he's shown himself to be the sort of God who cares, the sort of God who can and will intervene, the sort of God who has come right alongside us and carried our griefs and our sorrows. He doesn't promise that in this life he will take away all our suffering, but he does promise That he will always be with us. He doesn't promise that he will answer all our questions. But he has demonstrated that he is trustworthy and that he really cares. So if you want some points of application, there's one for you this morning. No matter what you're going through right now, know that you can trust God. Reflect on the sort of God he is. Remember the fact that he has come and he has carried your sorrows. And then try and let go of some of those questions And know that you can trust God. But of course the fact that Jesus came to this world and bore our griefs and sufferings was more than just about helping us to live through the sufferings we experience in this life. He didn't just come to share the experience so that he knew what it was like. The reason he came was to deal with the problem of evil and suffering right at its root. We read in this passage that Jesus came and bore our iniquities. He bore our sin so that many... Would be made righteous. That is, we'd be made right before God, able to share in relationship with Him again. And this was all part of the eternal plan. I think it's very important that we understand that. We mustn't think that Jesus coming and giving and, and, and suffering and dying was some kind of emergency intervention. Uh, when we read in the passage that all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way, God knew that that was going to happen. And He knew the price that he would have to pay to bring him back to himself. But he considered the end result a people that would freely and joyfully share in the eternal dance of giving and receiving love that already existed within the Godhead. That was a prize so supremely worthwhile that the high price he would have to pay would be worth it. And it was a price that he determined that he would pay himself in full. When we read that Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, that he bore our iniquities and our sins, it means he bore them all, not just some of them, all of them. When Jesus left the glory of heaven and came to earth, he didn't just come to taste what it was like. He embraced it in its fullness. He didn't just sip at the cup of suffering. He drank the cup dry, every last drop. As Jesus hung there on the cross, he took all our grief, our sin, our pain, the whole lot. He took on himself the whole consequence of Adam's sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. He paid the whole price. The God that we worship isn't the sort of God who would sit by and do nothing in the face of evil and suffering. He isn't the sort of God that would get caught out and have to come and take remedial action. He's the sort of God who knew what a high price would have to be paid. But the end he had in mind was so glorious, so unspeakably amazing, that he was prepared to pay it personally. If you're here today and you're wondering what the point of life is, perhaps it all just seems too much of a struggle. Or perhaps you've been successful, but you find that success hasn't brought the fulfillment you expected. Well, this is the good news I want you to hear today. That you were made for a purpose. And that purpose was to receive God's love and to respond in giving love. So He brought into God's family. This was God's plan from the beginning. And though the price is one that you could never pay, He has already paid it in full. He won't force you. He's not that sort of God. If he wanted servants, he could have made them for free. So although he longs for you to come, he's waiting with open arms. He leaves you to choose. Won't you choose life today? Be part of a glorious future in the presence of an amazing God. I know that many of you here this morning have already made that decision. Why don't you let your response Be one of praise and worship. Let your mind and your heart expand as you think about this amazing, triune, loving, giving, life-bringing God. The God who loved you so much that he came. This God who so wanted you to share in his life and love that far from sitting indifferently on the sidelines gave everything. He gave himself for you. This sort of God is the God that the Bible describes. And this God is so worthy of our worship, of our love, and our adoration. This morning has been a celebration of God's goodness. And I don't know if we have time. Perhaps we could just finish with um, a, a, a song of praise to this God who has given so much.